Bibles this morning and turn to the book of 1 Timothy. So we continue our series through this first of the pastoral epistles, and we will finish the last section here of chapter 1, Paul's letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. And as you're finding your place, if you would stand in honor of the reading of God's word, we come to sit beneath God's word and to let God speak to us through his word. Beginning in verse 12 of chapter 1, Paul writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. See if you notice these words. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's pray together. Father, would you simply remind us in this text of the overflowing grace of God? Would you remind us of what you have done for us in salvation? Remind us of how you have equipped us and the goal for which you have equipped us, would you remind us of the praise that we should render because of our salvation? Would you remind us of the duty and the obligation that now falls upon us as recipients of your grace? Would you just teach us very simply once again from your word what it means to be saved? For we ask these things in Christ's name. In this text, we see the overflowing 
and overwhelming grace of God. John would write in John chapter 1 as he writes about the Lord Jesus that we are recipients in Christ of grace upon grace. Paul will write to the church at Rome, a passage that we read yesterday at Ronnie Beckworth's funeral, that we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. Those are big, fancy, theological words. We spend weeks in seminary studying the doctrine of justification, the doctrine of sanctification, the doctrine of predestination, the doctrine of God's adoption of us in Jesus. Paul will write to the church at Ephesus, and he will say, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us, and he called us, and he has adopted us as sons in the Lord Jesus, and he has sealed us by the power of the Holy Spirit. He will use this striking, strong, emphatic, and yet often to our minds and hearts, theologically confusing language throughout the New Testament to describe God's work of salvation, a work that we often describe as an umbrella, a work that begins in eternity past, before we were ever formed, God in his sovereign and good will chose to create people in his image and to save some. In time, he sends his son. He sets forth the eternal counsel of his will and, and in our creation and in our time, he sets his saving love upon us and we find this mystery worked out throughout the, new, the pages of the New Testament and we simply sit and marvel at what God has done for us in Jesus and we try to figure out the terminology and we think about words like repentance and words like conversion and words like regeneration and it sometimes can just cause us to be overwhelmed. And then every so often in the Bible, Paul, the great theologian, inspired by the Holy Spirit, seems to just feel from the Holy Spirit the overwhelming desire and call to explain salvation in very simple terms. And this is one passage from the New Testament where Paul doesn't hardly even use any big words. He just reminds us of the pure and simple gospel that is found in the grace of Jesus coming to those who are sinners. In this text, the body of Christ, the church is reminded to recognize and to give glory to God for the fact that each and every believer shares the same testimony. God, the sovereign God, the holy God, the almighty God, the transcendent God has by his grace through the work of his son, 
saved us. That God, the holy God, the almighty God, the creating God, the sovereign God has by the work of his son and by his amazing grace saved you and saved me. Paul has just defended in the previous verses, look in verse 8 through 11 of chapter 1, he has just defended how the law is to be used properly. Remember, he's reminding us of the fact that there are false teachers in Ephesus, and he's told the church in the first part of chapter 1, remember who you are in Jesus, and remember not to teach any different doctrine, because there are some who are. There are some who are leading people astray. And he talks about this at the end of verse 6 and verse 7. They're desiring to teach things that they don't even understand. They've swerved and they've wandered from the faith. And so in verse 8, he says, now, as we talk about the law, if they really want to be teachers of the law, then they should understand what the law is for. The law is to show us Christ. The law is our schoolmaster, Paul will write elsewhere in the New Testament, to bring us, to lead us to Christ. The law is what shows us our sin and gives us a reminder of God's grace in our lives and keeps us clinging closely to Jesus. And the law helps us in our sanctification by avoiding things that God has told us that we are not supposed to do and by reminding us of the things that God has told us we are supposed to do. That is the use of the law. And so in verse 12, he continues on by contrasting law and gospel and showing what the law could not do, saving us, God has done for us by his grace in Jesus. For Paul and for all of the New Testament church and for us, we need to begin to understand perhaps this morning for the first time that all the law does is show us how sin kills us. And the gospel shows us how Christ kills sin. And so in verse 12, Paul says, I thank him who's given me strength because he's judged me faithful and he's appointed me to his service. Paul begins sharing his personal testimony and, and throughout, but in these first couple of verses, he begins to show us the first thing that I would have you see from the text, which is the doctrine of grace in salvation. He wants us to understand how grace works in salvation. And very simply and quite specifically, he points out that grace is this unmerited favor and work of God in which he brings his love and his mercy into the life of someone who's undeserving. He says in verse number 13, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an opponent of Christ and of his church. We could fill that with so many different things in our lives that cause us to be separated from a holy God. I was a person filled with anger. I was an addict. I was a person who was filled with lust. I was a person who lied. I was a person who was lazy. 
I was a person who didn't love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I was a person who didn't love my neighbor as myself. I was a person that foul mouth and, and used inappropriate words, whatever it may be of you. And friends, even if you were saved as a child, you know I was disobedient to mother and father. I was selfish and I was greedy and I wanted my own way. And I learned from the power of the gospel that I was unworthy of God's grace. I was a sinner in desperate need of a savior. There's a very real sense in which this is nothing more than Paul giving the testimony of the blind man. All I know is that I once was blind and now I see. There's no evangelism course here. There's no systematic theology course. There's no seminary class 101 for us to really understand the doctrine of salvation. This is simply Paul saying, I'm a recipient of God's grace. I'm not worthy. And so Paul will write in what has become one of the most used, used verses in all of the New Testament to bring people to salvation. Verse 15, Paul writes, this is the saying that is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul knew his heart. He knew he was a persecutor. He knew that the law and all of his religiosity had only widened the chasm between he and God until the resurrected Jesus intervened and intersected his life. And by the power of the spirit, his heart was regenerate. And though he would tell the church at Ephesus, I was dead in my trespasses and sins, but God, but God, he made me alive. I was unworthy and I was undeserving. There is a very real sense, friend, this morning that if you are not able to feel the weight of this verse and to in some way agree with it, then you don't understand the gospel and you don't understand God's grace. I am the foremost. I know my own heart. You know your heart before the Lord. Only you and the Lord know the depths of your depravity before the Lord. And this is Paul, perhaps the greatest Christian who's ever lived. And he says, I'm the foremost sinner. I'm the chief, I'm the worst. And yet God showered his love on me. He wants the church to understand the doctrine of grace and salvation. In verses 12 through 15, he lays out for us salvation. But he also says in verse 12, that it is because of this salvation that he gives God thanks that he's been given not only salvation, but strength now. Because of my salvation, secondly, he says, I, I've been given strength. God has judged me now 
faithful. Now, think, think about this. This is Paul who says, I was a persecutor. I was zealous to persecute the church. I was a blasphemer. Some of you understand and some of you know and some of you would be willing to attest that there were days in your life when you stood in this life before a holy God and over and over and over and over again, you swore against him and you blasphemed him and you used his name in vain. And even if those words never came out of your mouth, even if those words were never uttered, even if you never took the Lord's name in vain in the way that we might think of it in our world, you know that that was the condition of your heart. Standing against him. Now this is Paul saying, I'm the foremost sinner. And God's given me strength to serve him. I thank my God because he's given me strength. The third thing that we see in this verse is he says, my strength that comes through my salvation, he's given me in order that I might serve him well. He's appointed me faithful. Why? For his service. For his service. This is the doctrine of salvation in a nutshell, friends. He doesn't use any fancy words. So, right? The doctrine of justification is that we are declared to be righteous in God when we come in repentance and in faith because of the work of Jesus Christ. His blood covers our sin and we are clothed with his righteousness. And then in the work of sanctification, he begins to conform us more and more and more into the image of his son. And he equips us and utilizes us in his service. He strengthens us and empowers us until the day of completion that Pastor Tim prayed about. He carries it out until he calls us home and then he glorifies us. So this is the doctrine of salvation. He saves us. He strengthens us. He equips us for his service. And this is Paul using the most elementary terms to explain it. Andrew Fuller wrote a great work about salvation. Andrew Fuller was a great Baptist pastor and Baptist theologian in the early days of Baptist history. And he wrote a, he wrote a book, you know, you would never pick it up off the shelf because the language is ancient. But the title of the book was titled, The Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation. And it comes from verse 15. This is the saying that is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. In the English Reformation, one of the first English reformers came to faith because he read this verse. This is the saying that is worthy of all acceptation. This is the kind of saying that we as the church take to the world. If you don't know how to share your faith with someone, memorize 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, and just go tell it to somebody. Hey, this is the saying that you need to know and that you need to accept. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom you and I are the worst. We're the chief. Now, friend, get this, get this straight. This does not mean that we are all Hitler. This does not all mean that we have equally, in, in terms of the number of our actual sins, lived out our wickedness in the same way. And so it, it's very right for us, it's very right for us to come to a text like this and to maybe feel some emotional withdrawal 
and say, well, well, I'm not the foremost. I can point to a whole world full of evil people that are much worse than me. But that's because we come with a man-centered perspective and a wrong understanding of God's holiness and a wrong understanding of our heart before the Lord. And we don't understand that all we like sheep have gone astray, that all of us have fallen short of God's glory, that the wages of sin is death. And that every person who has ever lived in every corner of God's created globe is a sinner in need of a savior. The second thing that we see from the text is the display of God's grace in salvation. The display of God's grace in salvation. At the end of verse 15, he says, I am the foremost. And then this is one of those glorious little butts in the Bible. He's already had one in verse 13. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an opponent, but I received mercy. And then in verse 16, he says, even though I was the foremost sinner, but I received mercy. Twice, he says, I've received God's mercy. I've received God's grace. It has overflowed for me. Verse 14, in case you didn't miss that verse. It's overflowed in my life. And it overflowed for what reason? So that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. The first thing that we see about the life of Christ and the work of Christ in this passage is that it is perfect in every aspect. Christ Jesus is perfect in judging us to be faithful for his service. Christ Jesus is perfect, perfect by the power of his spirit through the holiness of God to judge us to be unworthy sinners. Christ Jesus is perfect in the way that he overflows his grace from the Father to us by the spirit. Christ Jesus is perfect in the way that he came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus is perfect, look in verse 16, in the way that he displays his patience. He is perfect in every aspect of his work and of his person in this life and in our life's lives. And so the second thing, in addition to just this perfection, is his perfect patience that he specifically names here in verse 16. His patience. He wanted the world to see the perfect patience of Jesus as an example to, of those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now, here is what we may come to this text and we may misinterpret or misread. This is not Paul saying that Christ simply waits on people to come to him. Right? When we think about patience, that's what we think about. People have to come to Jesus for salvation. Okay? So Jesus is just going to, to sit and he's just going to wait. Just wait till they respond. And boy, don't you get impatient in this life? But Jesus just perfectly waits until you come. He just perfectly waits. Jesus is just sitting up there on the throne at the right hand of God the Father. He's just perfectly waiting on all people to respond. That's not what this text means. We might come to this text and we might say, well, well Paul is saying that we should just simply see God as patient. We should see God as patient. We should see that God waits on us. And so, you know, when the time is right, we should be patient and reflect God's patience. And, and, and when the time is right, then we'll, we'll come to Jesus. And just patiently kind of figuring all things out. Jesus gives us 
a perfect example of patience in the way that he lived. And so we should model the patience of Jesus. That's not what this verse is about. What this verse is about is Paul saying that in Christ, God is demonstrating his perfect patience in that he saves us after watching us rebel against him for so long. That's what the gospel is. He displays his perfect patience and we can't fathom it in its fullness, but God patiently watches us rebel against him for sometimes decades and decades when he is the giver of all good gifts and he sustains our lives and he brings us through so much and he gives us so much and yet we want the glory and we demand the honor for ourselves and we want our own way and we go our own way and we seek our own pleasure and we hurt and we kill and we maim and we speak insolence against him and we blaspheme and we turn our hearts away from him and God watches us rebel against him for so long. And then because he's chosen us in the mystery of his eternal will, when he chooses to save us, he saves us. And he changes our life. In his perfect timing, he displays his perfect patience and he calls us to himself. And because of the mercy of Jesus, because of the grace of Jesus, because the wrath of God has been satisfied in Jesus, he takes those decades of rebellion and he just wipes them away. Just wipes them away. And he takes the perfect righteousness of his son and he clothes us like the prodigal. This is the perfect patience of God in Jesus. He watches us rebel against him for so long and still has grace to save us. The third thing that we see in our text this morning is the doxology of grace in salvation. There's three different things that we see here in this text. The first is from the very first verse. We already mentioned it. We moved past it rather quickly, but he begins verse 12 simply by giving thanksgiving. I give thanks. I give thanks. Friend, let me just ask you the question. When was the last time you simply in your prayer life said, thank you, God, that you saved me? When was the last time that you just uttered those words? Thank you, God, that you saved me. I was undeserving. I was unworthy. I can look at my life behind me and I can see the wake of damage that's been done because of my sin. I know the depths of my own heart even now. Even if you are saved, even if you are in Christ, you know the inclination of your heart to still sin. You know the temptations that the enemy will use roaming around in this life like a roaring lion. You know the dark recesses of your own soul that no one else knows. You know what you've hidden from him. You know what you're hiding from him even this morning. 
When was the last time you simply said, God, thank you that you saved me? And then right there in verse 17, right? We sing these hymns. We sing these hymns. We've been singing them our whole lives. We, we come to church. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, right? We've been singing them since we were a kid. And, and we often think, who writes words like that? Who writes hymns like that? What does that even mean? Language that we don't even use anymore, that God is immortal and invisible, God only wise. I mean, it, it sounds very ancient. Do you ever stop and do you ever think, where do these hymn writers get their language from? To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. This is doxology. The word doxology means a word of praise or a word of glory that goes up to God. That's why when we sing praise God from whom all blessings flow, it's called the doxology. Because that's what we're doing as we declare that before the Lord. Praise you, God, for from whom all blessings flow. The honor and the glory are due to your name. Salvation is of the Lord. And so Paul says, I give thanks. I give honor to this God, the one who is immortal, the one who is eternal, the one who is transcendent, the one who is holy, the one who is other, the one who is separate and unique, the one who is independent in and of himself, perfect in all of his goodness and his holy character. I give honor to him, the only God. Friends, there's no other God. There is no other God. Well, what about the God of Muslims? There is no God of Muslims. Well, what about the, the plethora of gods in uh, pantheistic worldviews? We, we talk about this a lot, but you go to India and you do missions and you ask people to receive God or to receive Jesus and they'll gladly do it because they just add him to their collection of all of their other gods that they worship. But then when you say, oh, no, 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 wait a second, wait a second. No, 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 you have to destroy all of those idols. You have to not believe in any of those little G gods because they aren't gods. There's only one God. There's one Christ, one Lord, one mediator. Then they say, whoa, 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 wait, no, 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 no. We can't give our life to that Jesus. We can't give our life to that God. And this is Paul saying, there's only one God. It, it blows my mind, the people who will say, well, it's just, you know, it's just the same God, right? It's just the same God. It's not a different God that those other religions believe. It's just the same God, different language. Just go read their books. Go read their books. Go read the Quran. See if it says the same thing about God that the Bible does. It doesn't. They are two completely opposite, mutually exclusive worldviews. They cannot both be right. They are not just going up another path, and in the end, God will make it all right by allowing them to come through Jesus. They don't believe the same thing about Jesus. They believe lies about Jesus. Quran wasn't written until 500 years after Jesus was resurrected from the grave. Like, don't blaspheme God by saying they're the same. 
And Paul says, and I give him glory. He's the only one worthy of glory. To this God be glory forever and ever. Amen. Finally, the duty of grace and salvation. The duty of grace and salvation. In verse 18, he says, and so this charge I give you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, I think that simply means that Paul knew by the work of the Holy Spirit in his life, by the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, by the work of the church, by what he had seen in Timothy's life and what the church had, had, had said about Timothy. They knew that Timothy was going to be a leader. They had set Timothy apart. They knew as a young man he was going to be a leader in the church. God had given him a word about Timothy. And so he says, I'm, I'm going to give you two things to do. Number one, I want you to wage war. And number two, I want you to hold the faith. Number one, I want you to wage war. He says, I charge you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with these prophecies that you may wage the good warfare, the duty of grace and salvation. When grace interrupts our life and saves us, then the duty becomes that we wage war for King Jesus. We wage war in this world. We wage war against competing worldviews and opposing philosophies. We do it winsomely and lovingly and as graciously as we can by, by God's spirit, but we also wage war against ourself. We wage war against our sin. We wage war against our lust. We wage war against our anger. We wage war against our selfishness. We wage war against our laziness. We wage war against our pride. We wage war so that the enemy cannot lead us astray. We wage war. You go to battle every day. That's why Paul will write at the end of Ephesians to the church, right? To this church, to this church that he had been with for three years. When he writes his letter to the Ephesian church, he reminds them that they need to put on the full armor of God, wage war. And much like we saw in our brief study through the book of Jude, to contend for the faith, or as he puts it here in this passage, to hold the faith, to hold the faith. You ever seen those old movies where they're uh, doing battle and the men are all standing there together, you know, they're linking arms, they're about to engage in warfare, but their, their commander is saying, hold, hold, hold. There's a sense in which we, we are already engaged in warfare and yet there's something that we're holding to while we wage warfare and our God is saying, you cling to it while you're fighting. You keep holding while you're fighting. Hold this faith with a good conscience. Hold on to this gospel. Hold on to the overflowing grace of God in your life. And then, just as I told you he was going to, remember twice in the introductory paragraph, he says, certain persons, certain persons have swerved and they've wandered. Paul had looked these elders in the face at Miletus and he had told them, some from among you are going to end up being like wolves leading God's people astray. And now Paul says, here's why I want you to wage war and here's why I want you to hold fast to the faith with a good conscience. Because some, he says, have made a shipwreck of their faith. 
They've professed Jesus, perhaps, in word only. They walked an aisle. They took a preacher's hand one time. They filled out a card. Maybe they even went to church. Maybe they even had a position in the church. Maybe they were even a pastor. But they've walked away from the faith. Their life has now proven that they love their sin more than Jesus, that they love false doctrine more than Christ, that they love the pleasures of the world more than the overwhelming, overflowing grace of the Lord. And he says, some have already shipwrecked their faith. They've shipwrecked their faith. Now, we'll learn from the rest of the New Testament that what's, what's reality is that they never had true faith to begin with if they shipwrecked it. Because God carries to completion the work that he's begun. And if you're really in Christ, you will not walk away. You will not wander away. You will not shipwreck your faith. God will keep you. But friends, I believe that there's some true Christians out there that their boats are coming dangerously close to the place for them to crash. And if they are in Christ, then the Spirit of God will take the wheel and the rudder of that ship of their life and move them away. They'll be convicted of sin. They'll return to Christ. They'll repent. They'll hold fast to the faith with a good conscience. And some will allow that ship to run right into the rocks and so prove they were never truly one of his. And he says, I'll give you two examples. You all know Hymenaeus. You all know Alexander. I could give you examples from my own ministry. I could give you examples of deacons that have served in our church. Call them by name. And they've made a shipwreck of their faith. And he says, what, what do we do with such people? Well, again, from the rest of the New Testament, we know we love them. We implore them. We beseech them. We call upon God to save them and bring them back. We work with them. We take another to go to them. We surround them with counseling. We surround them with love. We surround them with, with whatever we can give them from the church. We beg and we implore and we pray more and we pray more and we serve more and we counsel more and we call them to repentance more and we do it for as long as it takes until it shows from their life that they're unwilling to repent, that they're unwilling to come back to Christ, that they're unwilling to admit that they need help. And then Paul says, we give them over. Paul says, I've handed them over to Satan so that they may learn not to blaspheme. It's interesting here. Paul doesn't say, I've handed them over to Satan so that they'll just bust hell wide open. Even in this phrase, Paul says, I've handed them over so that they might learn, so that they might see. That's what happens in church discipline, friends. That's what should happen in church discipline. When the leaders of the church and the people of the church take months and months and months with people who've fallen into sin, as we should do as a church, and then the day comes when those people should be brought before the church, and the church should say, we love them, and we're going to keep ministering to them, and we're going to bless them, but we can no longer affirm their profession of faith in Jesus, and so we must remove them from our fellowship because it's a damning indictment of the gospel on the church 
when Hymenaeus and Alexander are allowed to just keep running around the church stirring stuff up or living out in the world in this manner of sin all the while saying I'm a member at First Baptist. Doesn't work that way. Paul says I've handed them over. Friends, this is the most basic, most basic presentation of the gospel in the New Testament. You are a sinner in need of a savior. Christ has come in his mercy and in his love to save you. And if you will repent of your sins this morning, if you will place your life in Christ's hands, he will forgive you of your sins. He will save you. He will change your life. It will be immediate. Now, the consequences of your sin may carry on. It may be hard for you to still overcome sin in your life, but he will give you his spirit to come alongside you, to help you, to teach you all of these things that you need to know. When John Bunyan, that great English pastor who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, wrote his own spiritual autobiography, he titled it, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And Charles Wesley wrote it this way about his life. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Have you ever thought about that as it relates to the love of Christ, that he pursued you all the way to his own death? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, overflowing, Paul would tell Timothy. He emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free. For, oh my God, it found out me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, my, my favorite verse of the hymn. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And so, no condemnation now I dread. If you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold. I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. That's the gospel.